ripped straight from the headlines of Hollywood. Murder. Intrigue. Stompanato. The saga of Lana Turner and the killing of Johnny Stompanato on this week's This Was a Thing. And you're listening to This Was a Thing, the podcast that dives deep into the cultural happenings of yesteryear. On today's episode, we are looking at the murder of Johnny Stompanato. Murder? Murder. Now, this was a thing because the murder of Johnny Stompanato was the most talked about Tinseltown murder for many years after he was discovered stabbed to death in 1958. While Stompanato was a gangster, and gangsters, you know, were known for ending up dead under mysterious circumstances, it was the fact that Stompanato had been killed by 14-year-old Cheryl Crane that made this case a sensation. Who was Cheryl Crane? Good question. Why? She was the daughter of Hollywood's most famous Cinderella story, the actress Lana Turner. Why did Lana's daughter kill her mom's boyfriend? And did she actually kill her mom's boyfriend? Well, let's find out who was behind one of Hollywood's most notorious true crimes. While OJ and Robert Blake and Phil Spector have all eclipsed the Johnny Stompanato crime in our recent minds, we have to remember that this murder was really the beginning of America's obsession with not only Hollywood crimes, but one of the first cases where an actor's on-screen persona was synonymous with their off-screen persona. To tell you a little bit more about Lana Turner, I want to get a quote here from Dorothy Kilgallen. Lana Turner, this is from Dorothy Kilgallen. She says, Lana Turner is a superstar for many reasons, but chiefly because she is the same off screen as she is on. Some of the stars are magnetic dazzlers on celluloid and ordinary practical polo-coated little things in private life. Not so Lana. No one who adored her in movies would be disappointed to meet her in the flesh. The flesh is the same. The biography is as colorful as any plot she has ever romped through on screen. The clothes she wears are just like the clothes you pay to see her in on Saturday night at the Bijou. The physical allure is just as heavy when she looks at a head waiter as when she looks at a hero. Huh. So, who was Lana Turner, the mother of Cheryl Crane, who killed Johnny Stompanato? Lana Turner was actually born Judy Turner in 1921 in Idaho. She grew up in San Francisco, the daughter of a gambling father who was found murdered after a gambling game gone wrong. Oh, good. And a mother who couldn't afford to keep her, so she sent Judy to live with an abusive family. And when mom had enough money, she took Judy down to L.A. for some warmer climate. Now, this is where we get the Hollywood Cinderella story. Before the murder of Johnny Stompanato, Lana Turner was known for the greatest story to ever come out of Hollywood. It's one of those stories where every aspiring actress dreams of this coming true, but knows it's too impossible to actually become a reality. And that's to meet you, Ray Hebel. Hi, how are you? Ray Hebel. In one moment, Judy Turner went from regular girl, sipping a milkshake, to one of the most internationally recognized stars 
Hollywood has ever seen. Bye-bye, Milkshake Judy. Hello, Hollywood Lana. All my milkshakes bring the boys to MGM. So one day, she was sitting at a famous drugstore in Hollywood called Schwab's. She skipped class. And she was sitting there. She was drinking a Coke when a very famous movie director named Mervyn Leroy came in. He saw her, just brought her to the studio, and she became Lana Turner. Wow. Now, that is the story we have been told. Here's the truth of that story. It's not too different, but here is the truth. (laughs) It's January 1937, and she's actually at a place called Curry's Ice Cream Parlor. It was next to Hollywood High School, which is where she was. Okay. Because she was skipping class. If she had gone to Schwab's, it's like kind of physically impossible, right? Because it's too far away. So she's 16 years old. She goes into the, the soda fountain shop, and she catches the attention of a guy named R. Wilkinson. R. Wilkerson is the owner of the Hollywood Reporter. And he goes up to her and he says, hey, would you like to be in pictures? Because he's just so taken with her beauty. And she, Judy, she seems confused and she says, I'll have to ask my mother. So Judy and her mom went to Wilkerson's office. He put them in contact with an agent and soon that agent brought them over to Warner Brothers. Oh, wow. Now, Judy Turner... Uh, is now named Lana Turner, and she goes. She becomes a contract player at Warner Brothers under the tutelage of director Mervyn Leroy, and he's the one who says, you can't call yourself Judy. It's a boring name. You're going to be Lana. For those of you who don't know, a contract player, which is something we don't really have anymore, means that every single actor in Hollywood was only employed by one studio. You couldn't go and do movies for other studios, and you had to do whatever the studio was telling you. The first movie they put her in is a movie called They Won't Forget, and in it, she plays a teenage murder victim. Now, what's interesting about Lana Turner is all the movies that she appears in, in some way, shape, or form, is predicting what her life is eventually going to turn out to be. She gets a fantastic write-up in The Hollywood Reporter, even though she has a small role. Hollywood Reporter, of course, because that's the guy who found her. Now, they put her in a very tight, tight, tight sweater. And Modern Screen Magazine says, Turner, quote, made a sweater look like something Cleopatra was saving for the next visiting Caesar. (laughs) And they dub Lana Turner the sweater girl because of her figure. So now Leroy moves to MGM and he takes Lana Turner with him. And Jack Warner, who ran Warner Brothers, was like, good. He goes, I don't know why the fuck y'all love on her. She's not very good. Now, when she goes over to MGM, one of the players that was at MGM was a woman by the name of Jean Harlow. And Jean Harlow was a sex symbol and she was blonde. And six months before Turner goes over to MGM, Harlow died. And Mm -hmm. so Louis B. Mayer of MGM is looking to find a Gene Harlow type to replace Gene Harlow. And he sees Lana Turner and he goes, her, she can be the next Gene Harlow's sex symbol. There you go. Throughout the late 30s, Mayer puts her in like tons of teen comedies where she plays the vixen or the trouble girl in movies like uh, Dramatic School calling Dr. Kildare. And finally, Lana gets top billing in 1939's Dancing Co-Ed by the 1940s. Lana's on-screen persona as a vixen soon became her off-screen persona as well. Lana is lucky in film, not so lucky in love. She once said, I wanted to have one husband and seven children, and it looks like it was the other way around. So in the 1940s, she goes through a string of men. The first guy she dates is the great band leader, Artie Shaw, and she elopes with him after one date. They have one date. Wow. And they go get married. So she stays married to Artie Shaw for only four months. And she said, he didn't like me. But you know what? Lana's going to get cheered up because in 1942, she's going to marry restauranteur Stephen Crane after this is a long courting period. It's a week of dating. Then it's annulled. (laughs) 
four months later because she finds out his divorce from his first wife isn't finalized. Got it. So now they're divorced. Then she realizes she's pregnant by him. So they remarry. Lucky in love. Lucky in love. Here she is talking about Stephen Crane. Okay. Husband number two, Stephen Crane. Well, of course, I speak kindly of him because he's the father of my child. Uh, and he was also not divorced from the wife. His well, that I only found out after I'd announced to the world that I was pregnant. Then I find out that he's not legally divorced. <laughs> then I have to go to court and get an annulment. Otherwise, I could have been sued for bigamy. And still, the baby's growing inside. And so I got the annulment. Now I have an illegitimate child. So... I mean, that was a mess. Sound like Falcon I... Crest. Yeah. <laughs> now, she does have the child, and the child is born in July of 1943. The child is called Cheryl, Cheryl Crane. Crane. Even though it's, she tries to make it sound like she has a very good relationship with Cheryl Crane, Lana pretty much just jumps Cheryl in different boarding schools. So Cheryl very rarely sees mom and dad. 1944, she actually gets divorced from Stephen. And then in 1946, this is the major change that happens for Lana Turner. It's a movie called The Postman Always Rings Twice. Oh. And it's her first femme fatale role. And the plot of the movie, she plays an unhappy woman who conspires with her lover to kill her old husband. Huh. Now, in this scene, she and her lover have just thrown her husband's car off an embankment, and they're going down to make sure that the husband is actually dead. Right. Come on, let's get down there. We've got to mess ourselves up so we can prove we've been in the accident, too. Right. Come on. Look, Frank, a car's coming. Can they see us? I don't think so. We haven't got a mark on us, but it's too late. You better get up there and start yelling for help. I'll get the car down the rest of the way somehow. So there they are trying to figure out how to cover up a murder. How's that crystal ball coming? <laughs> and then in 1948, oh boy, this poor woman, she marries a guy named Bob Topping. He's a millionaire playboy. And she gives birth, but to a stillborn. So Cheryl is still the only child. At the same time, this newfound stardom is also getting to her head a little bit. And Mayer is getting really frustrated with her because she keeps postponing shooting the three musketeers. Because she's like, I have to get married and here and all my focus is going on the wedding. And then when she does the three musketeers, she's like, I want larger scenes. I want more money. So Mayer is like, you know what? I don't like being jerked around. So he decides to suspend her contract. And he's like, you're still working for me, but I'm keeping you off the screen for a while till you learned your lesson. Like, stop asking for things that you feel like you deserve. And in 1951, her career is now starting to go in the toilet. Her marriages are all like all horrible. She's facing bankruptcy. So in 1951, she tries to kill herself. Luckily, she survives it, bounces back. She has an affair with Fernando Lamas, who she gets rid of pretty fast because he's abusive. And then in 1952, she divorces Topping and she meets the guy who played Tarzan. His name is Lex Barker, and she marries him a year later. I liked Lex Barker until I started to do some research on him, and uh, she discovered that he was sexually abusing Cheryl Crane. And Cheryl Crane tells a story in her book about how she remembers her mom holding a gun to Barker's head while he slept to kill him. And then she thought, is this bastard worth the rest of my life in prison, the end of my career, and everyone's life is ruined? She didn't shoot him. So when he wakes up in the morning, she's like, you have to get the hell out. Uh, and they were divorced to avoid a scandal, and no criminal action was taken against 
Lex Barker. Jesus Christ. At the same time this is happening, MGM is like, we're not renewing your contract anymore. We're done with you. Which is great because she's allowed to move on and, and do other projects and not feel like beholden to MGM. She also earned MGM about $50 million in her time there. So I feel like she was unceremoniously dumped. So in 1957, she heads over to 20th Century Fox and she stars in a movie there called Peyton Place, which is like a soap opera-esque movie. Yeah. And in this movie, she plays a mom who's trying to keep oh, a good no. relationship with her teenage daughter. And she gets her only Oscar nomination for this film, the only one she'll ever receive in her life. Not only does she receive an Oscar nomination, she starts to receive flowers and cards from a guy known just simply as Johnny Steele. Johnny Steele. John Steele tells her that he's from Illinois, that he's a Marine. He's married twice before, but look at Lana, who she, she, <laughs> she to talk. He's devilishly handsome. His communication skills are not the best. And then, like she says, she finds out he's a gangster. His real name is Johnny Stompanato Jr., and he is a mobster. He was the bodyguard and bagman to gangster Mickey Cohen, who was one of the most sure. famous yeah, mobsters yeah. in history. He was also an enforcer for Mickey Cohen. I just imagine John. Johnny Stompanato is like Gary from Veep. Yeah. <laughs> Bagman. <laughs> I love it. That actually kind of works. In 1952, I love how the, the, the gangsters work. He leaves Cone and is and Cone's like, that's okay. Like it's a mert, like, best of luck in your new career, Johnny. <laughs> We're rooting for you. Go out to Hollywood and knock them dead. So Stompanato becomes a manager to his wife, actress Helene Stanley. Helene Stanley, if you don't know her, folks, she was a live action model for Cinderella. So anyway, so Lana Turner is like, uh, I'm leaving. I'm leaving you. And he says, you're not leaving me. I can destroy your face. And that's your career. So he threatened to rough her up. Not only does he threaten to rough her up, he says, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill your mom. And I'm going to kill Cheryl if you ever leave me. So she can't really get out of this relationship, right? And it's also rumored that Mickey Cohn is the one who's prompting Johnny Stompanato to stay in the relationship with Lana Turner because he knows how wealthy Lana Turner is, and he's like, we can blackmail her. That doesn't seem like something the mob would do, though. No, they're very nice people. Look how supportive they were of Johnny. <sighs> you need a reference? <laughs> Lana Turner, she goes off to London to film a movie called Another Time, Another Place, and it's going to co-star Sean Connery. Ooh. It's like one of his first roles. Lana. <laughs> So Johnny Stompanato is suspicious because Lana won't let him visit the set. So he shows up on the set with a gun, threatening to kill her and Sean Connery. So how does Sean handle this? He grabs the gun from Stompanato, beats the shit out of him, and Stompanato runs off the Can set. Can I tell you how I thought he might have done it sure. initially? He took his toupee and throw it like odd job. <laughs> <laughs> Just. Yeah. Knocks the gun, Knocks out, of the his gun hand. out of his hand. I like that. So then Scotland Yard literally puts this guy on a plane. Turner is now like, I got to go back for the Oscars. And she's like, I can't bring him to the Oscars with me. He's a freaking mobster. And Johnny just does not take kindly to that. And he beats up Lana Turner. And this is the year she's nominated? Yeah. Cheryl, the daughter, recounts some of the stuff that's going on with Lana Turner. And she says, uh, quote, there were awful fights, screaming and yelling and smashing glasses and just, you know, things I wasn't used to hearing. And she finally sat me down, her mom, and told me the whole story about having had him thrown out of England when she was filming there because he beat her so badly, how he threatened her life, my grandmother's life. She couldn't get him out of the house. She couldn't get rid of him. My reaction was, well, mother, call the police. And of course, that was the last thing in the world she would do because publicity you know i mean it would have been she felt the end of her career so johnny is pissed that he can't go to the oscars with her 
And we are going to go, folks, to April 4th, 1958. And this is the public account of what happened. Lana Turner was home. Johnny Stompanato showed up to her house. Lana doesn't want to argue in front of Cheryl. So she and Johnny go into her bedroom to argue. Cheryl hears all of the yelling going on in the bedroom, is very frightened for her mother, runs to the kitchen and grabs a kitchen knife. And as she's running up the stairs to go into her mom's bedroom, Johnny is grabbing his clothing from the closet because he's like, I'm leaving to hell with you. So just as he's moving past Lana toward, to go out of the bedroom, he's putting the jacket above over his shoulder and Cheryl is there and she thrusts out her arm. Lana says from her point of view, she thought that Cheryl had just punched Johnny. And then he says, oh my God, Cheryl, what have you done? So then apparently he falls to the floor. His eyes are closed. He's wheezing awfully. And Cheryl backs away and drops the knife. And Lana realizes she hadn't punched Johnny. She stabbed him. So Lana apparently, or allegedly, puts Cheryl back into her room. And she tries to save Johnny Stompanato's life. It's fruitless. So at, And then at age 32... Johnny Stompanato is dead from being stabbed by Cheryl Crane. Now, that's the story most people know. Here's some other accounts of what happened that night. A few days before the killing, Lana Turner told her daughter, I'm afraid of him. You've got to help me. Now, after he stabbed, who would be the first person you would call? I mean, 911. They don't call 911. Cheryl calls her dad. Stephen Crane, and it's like, this is what's happened. And Lana calls her mother, and the mother calls a doctor. And the doctor runs over, and he tries to give Johnny mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. And the doctor's a family friend, by the way. He's not like some random that they found in the phone book. He's he's knows He's the everybody. go-to. He's the go-to. He gives Johnny a shot of adrenaline directly into his heart to see if he can get the heart going. Oh, my God. And nothing happens. And... Johnny Stompanato, our military hero, wannabe actor, small-time hood, he's dead. Then the next call would be to whom? Remember, you, you said the police is the first call, and the police has not even been the third call at this point. Who do they call next? Jeez, let's go over who the story has. Uh, Louis B. Mayer. <laughs> no, but that would be great. <laughs> they call a guy named Jerry Geisler. Jerry Geisler is the lawyer at the time. He's the one who defended... Douglas Fairbanks and Charlie Chaplin on like various rape charges. He comes to the house. Then they call the police and the police are like, you need to come downtown for questioning Lana and Cheryl. How do they go down there? Now it's a murder investigation. What would, what would you think you should do? You separate. Oh yeah. Right. You separate them. So they can't talk about their story. They rode a tandem bike down there. They, oh, even better. <laughs> they rode down in Geisler's limousine. Okay. So it's Lana and Cheryl and Geisler alone in a limo going to Beverly Hills police station. And no, there were no formal statements made, but sta- and statements were not taken until after Lana and her daughter had time to talk to Geisler. And then when they did question Cheryl, Lana gets to stay in the room. Then they go, hey, listen, we don't want to, we, we could get into problems if we treat you any differently than we would a normal person, which is like what they've already done. They've literally given the limo ride. Yeah, the limo ride. Down, right? Keeping so, together. So Lana gets to go home and they put Cheryl in a cell for the overnight. So Lana's like, beauty sleep, darling. The district attorney of LA says, hey, we want a trial. We have a victim. We have a weapon. 
and we have a confession. The girl is like, I stabbed him. The judge, who has to decide whether or not this is going to go to trial, says, we have to do a coroner's inquest first. And then if the coroner's inquest determines that there was actually a homicide as opposed to self-defense, we'll go to a trial. And the DA is like, this is fucking bullshit. And the judge says, oh, by the way, Cheryl has to stay put in her cell because I don't want Lana or the mob getting to her. But Lana gets to stay home, right? Yes, I have to go and work on my lines. Cheryl's a child. She'll be fine. Hey, friends, hope you're enjoying the show. If you are, could you do us a favor? After you listen to today's episode, open up your podcast app and leave us a review, please. The more reviews we get, the more people will discover us, and the more people that discover us, the less lost we'll feel. You're good, buddy. It's okay. Uh, look, nothing has ever been easier to do. Just go ahead and grab a pen real quick. It's okay. We'll wait. Don't worry. Okay, head on over to your podcast app, click those three dots in the lower right-hand corner, click Go to Show, scroll down till you see ratings and reviews, then leave us some stars and a comment or two so our parents know that it was worth all the tuition that they spent. And if you really love us, head on over to Patreon.com and send us some money, and in return, you will get access to merch, special episode, bonus content, pictures of me shirtless. Okay, okay, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. Search This Was a Thing and help us out. But you know what? You've already helped us out today by listening to us, and we can't tell you how much we appreciate that. So thank you. Thank you. Okay, so now we're waiting for this coroner's inquest to figure out if there is an actual crime that they can proceed to put on trial, all right? Here's a couple of things, though, that are suspicious about this crime scene. Now, you have to remember, she has confessed, Cheryl, and Cheryl and Lana's stories never, ever differ. It's they it's legitimately word for word, always the same account, and you know a lot of times when it's not a correct event, the stories will change. Their stories have always, always stayed the same. Yep. So when they when the cops get in there, the knife isn't on the floor. It's in the sink. And when the police find the knife, there's no prints on the knife at all. Huh. I mean, that's, I guess, where you're supposed to put knives, though, in the <laughs> sink. So that's good, at least. Now, the knife apparently was new, but it was scratched and chipped as if it had seen significant use before. So, like... Was there a different knife they got rid of and now there's a new knife? Did she take the old knife and wash it off? This is weird. Now, there was no blood in the bedroom or on Lana Turner's clothes and the bedroom wasn't in any sort of disarray. Now, times were different because the press come in and take a photograph of John's Johnny's body laying on the floor. It looks interesting. You can look at the photo. Yeah. It doesn't it's not a bloody crime scene by any stretch of the imagination. And her bedroom is not in any sort of disarray, right? So there was a fight, but everything looks put together. She said that he was beating her up, but everything kind of looks perfect in the house. And finally, the blood on the knife contained several light and dark fibers or hairs, which could never be identified. I wonder if like carpet or even. Or was he in bed with somebody or was he with somebody? And that's where that's coming from. So automatically we have some questions, folks. We have some questions, all right? Now, remember Mickey Cohen, the gangster who does the great letters of recommendation? Oh, he's great. He's the one that the police called to identify Johnny Stompanato's body. And he says, I want him 
shipped home with Marine military honors because he was a Marine. After Mickey gets Johnny buried, Mickey then goes to the press and he tells the press, I think something fishy's going on here. He goes, this, the daughter didn't kill Johnny. Lana killed Johnny. That's what he's saying. Now, this case, folks, is now an international sensation. We have to remember how famous Lana Turner was. It's And it's one of those, what do they call the sexy stories, right? The, mm-hmm. daughter, the daughter killed it. The daughter killed to defend her mom. Should the daughter be punished for this? Then there's the rumor, did Lana actually kill her? And the daughter's taking the rap for it. The guy was a mobster. And literally, this, the newspapers the next morning all had photos of Johnny Stampanato's body all over the front page. April 11th, 1958 is the actual coroner's inquest. And remember, the inquest is going to be, was there a crime? Can you determine from the matter of death, is there a crime? And if there is, we'll go to a trial, all right? More than 100 journalists cover this story at the courthouse. There's 160 seats in the courtroom. 120 of them are for the press. So the interest in the case is absolutely overwhelming. Paid in Place, which was already a popular movie, its box office receipts jumped by a third the week after Johnny's death. Now, the big question is, is Cheryl going to testify? Because she's a minor, but she's the one who murdered the guy. (laughs) The lawyer, our great friend, our lawyer, he says, you know what? Cheryl won't testify because it's going to be too traumatic for her, but she'll submit a letter. Okay. There's probably a reason why they don't want Cheryl on the stand because cross-examination might be a little difficult. First witness called in the coroner's inquest is Mickey Cohn. (laughs) Your Honor. Because they say, you are the one who identified Mr. Stompanato, correct? That's the first question. Here's how he answers it. I refuse to identify him as John Stompanato Jr. on the grounds that I may be accused of this murder. (laughs) So they dismiss him. And they're like, bye. Next up is the coroner. The coroner says, hey, look, no doctor could save this guy from the knife wounds. And... Look, folks, his liver was so bad, he would have been dead within 10 years anyway. (laughs) Then the coroner leaves. Now, here it comes, folks, our star witness, Miss Lana Turner. Lana. She comes in. She's wearing this, like, gray coat and gray silk tweed dress. And she comes through, like, the hall of records, through the reporters, through the crowd, like, with her handkerchief. She looks like she's in a movie. She gets on the stand. She takes off one white glove to expose her silver fingernails, and she trembles. She puts her hand to her face to fight control of tears that threaten to overcome her at any point. Rob is acting out all of this. I just want everyone to know. Reporters said that she stared down at her twisting hands or out over the heads of the spectators as though mumbling the details of an incredible nightmare. And she said Johnny is was hyper-possessive and prone to fits of violent rage. This is all true. I'm going to be honest. I'm not crying any tears that this guy's gone, by the way. No. She described the arguments in London. She described what it was like living with him. She said one time he put a razor to her face and threatened to disfigure her, saying, I'll ruin you in the movies. God damn it. And he said to her, I'm going to cut you just a little now to give you a taste of it. So this guy's all fucked up. And she said, I told my daughter that night when he came over, she said, I'm going to end it with him tonight, baby. It's going to be a rough night. Are you prepared for it? She said, when she told Johnny Stompanato was over, she said, he grabbed me by the arms and started shaking me and cursing me very badly and saying that if he said jump, I would jump. If he said hop, I would, I would hop. And I would have to do anything and everything he told me or he cut my face or cripple me. And if when it went beyond that, he would kill me and my daughter 
and my mother. And she said, I was unable to shield Cheryl from this horrible scene. She says, I broke away from his holding my holding me. And I turned around to face the door and my daughter was standing there. And I said, please, Cheryl, please don't listen to any of this. Please go back into your room. Cheryl go, went back into her room, but she said she could still hear us yelling. And I yelled at Johnny, don't ever touch me again. I am, I am absolutely finished. This is the end. And I want you to get out. I was walking toward the bedroom door and he was right behind me and I opened it and my daughter came in. I swear it was so fast. I truthfully thought she had hit him in the stomach. The best I can remember, they came together and they parted. I never saw a blade. After four hours of testimony, the jury, which consisted of 10 men and two women, deliberated for 25 minutes, and they found it a justifiable homicide. And the DA said, look, we're not going to press charges. There's no case here. They knew it was going to be a waste of their time. So they're like, we're not pressing charges. So on April 24th, the juvenile court says that Lana is not suited to being a mother, and Cheryl becomes the ward of Lana's mom. And she has to go to therapy with her mom and her dad. But at least she's not going to jail. Yeah. And then (laughs) there's public opinion. There was a rumor that Lana found Cheryl and Johnny in bed together. And that's why she killed him. Betty Davis had a daughter named B.D. Hyman. That's a name for you. (laughs) And in B.D. Hyman's book, she said, oh, I know for a fact that Lana Turner killed Johnny Stompanato and Cheryl took the rap from it. Or there was a rumor that they were spreading that Lana Turner found Johnny and another woman in bed, and that's where those hairs came from. Now, here's where I'm like, ooh, you're savage. Life magazine published a photo of Lana Turner testifying in court along with stills of her in courtroom scenes from three of her other films. Life magazine? That is shade. Oh, it gets shady. They go, Cheryl isn't the juvenile delinquent. Lana is. Now, once again, folks, Cheryl has admitted that she killed Johnny to protect her mother. Lana has admitted that Cheryl killed. I admit Cheryl did it. (laughs) I admit Cheryl did do this. But the stories have never changed. And years and years and years and years and years have gone by. And it's always been the same story from the two of them. And this is where now it starts to get also a little bit more odd. I'm going to explain it to you and you tell me what you think. So Stompanato's family sought a wrongful death suit of $750,000 against Lana Turner and Stephen Crane. So in June of 1958, they had to start taking depositions in this wrongful death suit. William Jerome Pollock, who was the attorney overseeing the case, he presents evidence that Stompanato was stabbed while he was laying down. That's not that's not good. Representing the Crane family and the Turners is a guy named Lowell Dryden. And on June 23rd, 1958, the three of them, accompanied by Dryden, so now we're doing with Lana, Stephen Crane, Cheryl, they all go to visit Pollock's office, who's representing the Stompanato family. We don't know what actually goes on in there, but Pollock says, Cheryl told me yesterday that she cannot recall actually stabbing Stompanato in the pink carpeted bedroom of Lana's rented Beverly Hills mansion. And Pollux further stated that Cheryl could not recall providing the written statement, remember that letter? Sure. On her behalf during that first inquest. So maybe the letter was not written by Cheryl. And no matter what happens in May of 1962, their suit was settled out of court for $20,000. So either they said, we're going to pay you off to get rid of you, or maybe they realized the $20,000 would be less trouble in the long run. So folks, 
you make your conclusions. There's no right, there's no wrong answer on all of this. Now, this case has kept resurfacing over time. And like I said, the O.J. Simpson's trial sort of superseded and all these other trials that have come since then. But there's a lot of film adaptations and like loosely based stories on the Lana Turner case. Uh, in 1962, Harold Robbins wrote a novel called Where Love Has Gone. And uh, they did a 1964 film adaptation of it that starred Betty Davis and Susan Hayward. Here's the courtroom scene from that. In this particular letter, Danny says when we're married, you knew she hoped to marry Lysich even at her age. No, I didn't. And you knew they already were making love. No. That Danny, even at her age, was not a virgin. I didn't know it then. Miss Spicer told me You later. couldn't tolerate a 15-year-old girl taking your lover away from you. Luke, no, stop it. You knew you had to do something and do it fast. You had a fight and in a rage, you killed Rick Lysich. And because you couldn't be punished and Danny couldn't, you somehow got her to say she killed him in your defense. That's the truth and that's what happened that night, isn't it? No, your honor, no, your honor. No. So that's a scene from... Where love has gone, which is basically saying Lana and Cheryl were involved in a love triangle with Johnny Stompano. Now, obviously, they're not using their real names, right? And in 1982, finally, Lana Turner broke her silence and wrote an autobiography. I bet that was giant. Yes. And when the book came out, Lana Turner did a bunch of press tours. And here she is talking to Brian Gumbel, reflecting on the murder. How deep are the scars that remain from that era? A great many. It's something I'll never, never be able to forget. But I have been able to, at least until writing this book, which was the toughest part, because in order to... I'm one who lives for today. And in order to dredge up all of that ugliness, that was really the most difficult part for me. But again, I had to set the record straight because there were too many vile rumors of what was not the truth. What kind of rumors? I, I, oh, I that afraid. I caught him and my daughter in bed together and that she caught the two of us in bed. I mean, terrible, horrible things that were absolutely not true. I mean, really vicious. And... The truth, as you detail it, was she thought she was saving your life? Well, yes. In 1988, Cheryl Crane comes out with her own autobiography to counteract the rumors going on that Lana Turner had actually killed Johnny Stompanato and to retort what B.D. Hyman was saying in her book. Oh, B.D. In the 90s, things start to get a little weird. Lana Turner had a hairdresser for a number of years by the name of Eric Root, and he wrote in autobiography. And in this autobiography, he says, Lana Turner told me, she killed Johnny Stompanato. Here is Eric Root. She came home before she was supposed to, and she found this woman in bed with Stompanato in her king-size bed. And I said in my book, this is what she told me, because he came after her and did this. Nobody does that to Lana. Shook her by her shoulders, her wide shoulders. And he kept shaking her. Nobody shakes Lana. She went like this. Didn't mean to kill him, but she got it in the right spot. I said, how did you feel? She said, I wanted to kill myself. She said to me, if I die, it's in my book, this quote, if I die before you, get my baby off the hook. So I'm doing that. So that was her hairdresser, who was selling a book at the time. I don't know if you noticed. I mean, the feeling was they thought, okay, well, if 
Cheryl admits that she's a juvenile. She has a better chance of surviving this thing and getting out alive than if Lana did it. Now, Cheryl Crane, in regards to Eric Root's book, says this is totally false. She says the idea that Root had in his book is so far-fetched. You know, everybody has something they want to sell. I guess it was the only way he could get his book published. What else do you think was in Eric Root's autobiography besides the Lana Turner the chapter? Fuck knows? It's just like, okay, for this starlet hair, I did this. I remember one time. Lana Turner said to me, you know, I have a lot of problems with waves in my hair. Can you straighten them out? Sort of the same way I straightened out Johnny Stompanato by stabbing him <laughs> to death. And I said, Lana, what did you say? And she said, oh, I, I let it slip. I let it slip. And I put down that Cosmo she was reading. And I said, now you listen to me, Miss Lana Turner. Miss Loose Lips thinks ships Miss Broad Shoulders. <laughs> I remember the time that Liz Taylor told me she kidnapped Patty Hearst. <laughs> I was giving Liz her traditional perm. <laughs> And she said, <laughs> I said, how are you doing today, Liz? And she said, oh, it's so horrible. She's like, we're hiding Patty Hearst in my house. And I said, what did you say? And she said, oh, nothing, nothing, nothing. She's like, I shouldn't have even said that. And I said, now you look at me, Liz Taylor. Now you look at me, Miss Butterfield Day, with those beautiful violet eyes. You tell Eric Root what you just said to me right now. <laughs> so, so Lana, you know, listen, she went the way most movie stars of that era did. Uh, she she married three more times. God bless her. Like most eras of like movie stars. Yeah. Like Liz like Taylor. She did a couple of more movies. They didn't, they weren't really all received all that well. And then she did stage shows. She toured the country in stage shows. And she led a pretty quiet life after that, and she died in 1995 at the age of uh, 74. The one I feel bad for, though, of course, is Cheryl Crane, because if she didn't do this, it's a horrible life. And even if she did do it, it's a horrible life. I mean, either way, this poor girl has suffered so, so much. She was made a ward of the state of California after all of this happened, and she kept escaping the hospitals that they were placing her in under psychiatric evaluation. And in one of the hospitals, actually, she befriended a person who convinced her to go on living and not to run and not to try to kill herself. Do you know who that person was? Who? Jonathan Winters, the comic Jonathan Winters. Then eventually she got to go back into Lana's custody, and Lana, like a good mother, stuck her in an institution 3,000 miles away. She goes through a variety of alcohol problems and drug problems. Eventually, she starts to build her life up again. She got to go work at her dad's restaurant, Stephen Crane. Okay. And she became an entrepreneur in that way. She also... She found love in her life, which I love. She came out as gay in the book. She said she'd come out to her parents at age 13. She lived in Hawaii for a bit. And then when Lana died, Lana left her $1.7 million estate to her maid. Wow. I don't think Lana Turner will win Mother of the Year anytime soon. Are you fucking kidding me? When we come back, you can tell me how you feel about Lana's maid. Getting $1.7 million. We'll be right back. This was a thing. This was a thing. And now, this is a sketch. And now, one of Mr. Stompanado's work associates will read a passage from Ecclesiastes 3, verses 1 through 4. Yes, hello. I'm Mr. Stampanato's uh, work associate. Uh, here's something from God. There's a time for everything, and a season for every activity under the heavens. A time to be born, and a time to die. Ain't that the fucking truth? Sir, please. I'm sorry, your popeness. <clears throat> 
a time to plant and a time to uproot. A time to kill and a time to heal. I can tell you one thing, Johnny ain't healing. Please, just finish the passage. Yeah, a time to tear down and a time to build. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. Hey, let's dance, everybody! Uh, please return to your seat. Thank you. Next up, uh, Mr. Stompanato will be eulogized by a former employer. Johnny was a real good guy, real good. A real mensch, as I'm sure some of you entertainment types out here would call him. I'll never forget the one time he was late getting my money from a hit. I called him to my office and I said, Where the fuck is my money, huh? You better get my fucking money or I'm killing your family with my bare fucking hands. Needless to say, Johnny got me my fucking money. And his fucking family's here today. Sadly to mourn his passing, but they're alive. Which was a result of Johnny fucking listening. And getting me my fucking money. Thank you. Thank you. And now we ask you please to rise and open your programs and sing along to one of Mr. Stompanato's favorite hymns, Wake Up Little Susie by the Everly Brothers. Thank you. This was a sketch. All right. So what is this legacy of the Johnny Stompanato murder case? Well, first of all, it gives us this Hollywood Cinderella story in Lana Turner which is a person who was just sitting in a restaurant and all of a sudden the next day she's in front of the movie cameras. It's also one of the first times we're really seeing the public conflating the performer with the character. The fact that there's really no separation between the person Lana Turner plays on screen and that behavior and the person who Lana is off screen and that behavior. Yes, there had been people where maybe there were similar traits being shared, but nothing that was so identical as this. And it's very hard then, I think, for the public to decide, well, what is real and what is not real. And of course, it sort of gives birth to the modern Hollywood trial and media circus. Now, we know there was the Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle case in the early 20s, but this is really setting the template of how media is going to react and intrude in people's personal lives. You know, if this was happening today, first of all, this would be on the news 24-7. You'd have 4,000 podcasts all about mm -hmm. Lana, Lana's mother, Cheryl's house, take, Cheryl, uh, the hairdresser. <laughs> what Mickey Cohen really likes to eat. Hello, you're here with Mickey and Meatballs, <laughs> the podcast where Mickey talks about what he likes to eat. And guess what? Every episode's the same. Meatballs. But just wait a second. No jokey. Today's episode's about gnocchi. Today's episode was sponsored by Squarespace. <laughs> <laughs> now you listen to me, Mr. Mickey Cohen. <laughs> Mr. I'll plug you full of holes. <laughs> you tell me what you know. Now you look at me, Mickey, and you tell me. Okay, okay. I love this guy. He's a good one. He's a good one, Ma. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. And so these are the facts of the case. This is, you know, this is what happened. So let me ask you, my friend, what do you think happened to Johnny Stompanato that evening? I mean, I think Lana did it. Okay. And yes, it makes sense that, you know, Cheryl taking the fall, you know, it, it, it just works out better for all parties. But for Lana to like even go like, well, you know what? If we blame Cheryl, she'll get out of it at first. And then she doesn't even fucking give her, leave her the money that I, I, I'm just shocked by that. I don't know what the kind of relationship was. And I will say, I think it's crazy that, I mean, well, awesome for the time that Cheryl was only 13 when she came out to her parents. Yeah. That's for the I'm time. I mean, I guess it just, you, I don't know. It just shows some kind of understanding and maturity at that age. Oh my God. Yeah. Here's what I think. I think that Cheryl did do it. 
I think she did it because she wanted to, I mean, here's what I think. I think she wanted to protect her mother, which is incredibly noble. But also, now this is me playing armchair psychiatrist and psychologist, so please forgive me. And I I don't mean to, you know, but I kind of have a feeling for somebody like Cheryl, who was born and then mom just was like, I'll get to you when I get to you. You know, you're not really a priority. Or based on what, based on what I'm reading and stuff, you're not really a priority to me. This was maybe a really important way to show her mom look how much i love you please keep me in your life yeah or maybe maybe cheryl's like i fear for my own life and i have to take matters into my own hands either way regardless of like this persona that lana turner puts out there on these talk shows of oh you know i couldn't believe it and i was so shocked and you know we all make mistakes and i you're a mom yeah you're a mom and the fact that you knew that all of these different guys were so horrible And you're bringing that home to your daughter to see that's, you know, shame on you. It's, you know, she can play the, oh, woe is me. And oh, I've made a mistake. But I I feel like when the the magazine said, you know, Cheryl's not the juvenile delinquent Lana is, I don't think there's a more accurate statement than that. The book that uh, Cheryl Turner wrote is called Cheryl Crane. Sorry, Cheryl Crane wrote is called Detour. And I have read it and it is very interesting and it is fascinating. So, folks, let us know what you think happened and if there's any details of this case that either we got incorrect or that you feel that you want to add on to hit us up on social media but now i think let's cleanse our palettes and play a game this was a thing and now it's a quiz this is a this was a quiz with mark schroeder lana turner am i right so who do you guys think you guys think uh you guys think she did it are you allowed to legally say on this podcast? Allegedly. 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 Speculatively. Speculatively. I, we talked about this. We we gave our answers. What do you think? Uh, I think it was the daughter. You know you what? You think the daughter? Yeah. I like the story of it actually being the daughter. In what room? Uh, the conservatory. With what? <laughs> the pipe. Uh, okay. <laughs> totally not what I was expecting. So Lana Turner, we're just going to do some Lana Turner trivia, baby. There's a lot of Lana Turner stuff out there. So I got this game called Turner, I Hardly Know Her. Okay. I got some nine questions here. Let's see uh, what you know and what you don't know. Lana Turner was called the sweater girl. Interestingly, Lana, translated into Spanish, means what? Whoa. Absolutely correct. Rob habla español. Un poco mi amigo. Oh, okay. What former James Bond actor claims that Lana Turner taught him how to kiss? Sean Connery. Incorrect. Roger Moore. What? Really? Roger Moore claims that he was a, like a dresser on a play she did and things got a little frisky. What? And what the hell's going on? I don't know. She's got two two bonds under her belt. One time, Lana Turner was forced to evacuate her apartment building when a fire broke out. Having only minutes to collect what she needed, what did she take? Her jewelry. Cheryl Crane. She grabbed lipstick, an eyebrow pencil, and a hair dryer. She made Cheryl Crane yeah. <laughs> take everything else. Yeah. Mom, it's burning! Uh, Cheryl, darling, the armoire. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How many IMDb acting credits does Lana Turner have? 20, 40, or 60? I'm going to say 60. Really? I was going to say 40. I was going to say with like film, I'm, I was thinking like TV and stuff too. What do you, you want to say, 40? 40? Um, let's do 60. I trust Rob. And right you should. 60, exactly 60 acting wow. credits on IMDb. The woman worked. 61 if you count the trial. Oh, televised. Hey. I want the credit. <laughs> True or false, Lana was set to appear in Anatomy of a Murder with James Stewart until she objected to the wardrobe. That's true. And Lee Remick took her part. That is 100% wow. true. That is 100 
percent. Did you write these questions? I just watched that movie for the first time last week. Oh, really? It's really good. Question number six. During her 1953 wedding to Lex Barker, what did Lana Turner do? A, kiss him first. B, faint. C, trip down the aisle. I was going to say faint. Fainted? She fainted. She fainted. According to her autobiography, Lana Turner lost her virginity at what age? Nine. Wasn't that it, that it was like really young or something? I, I mean, I try not to remember that part. I want to say nine. Nine or 13. 17, you pervert. 17. I thought I read something where a relative... Oh, no, I'm sorry. You're right. I'm wrong. Lana Turner campaigned for this future U.S. president in 1944. Oh, geez. It would have been Eisenhower. Roosevelt. Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And your final question, along with Rita Hayworth and Betty Davis, among others, Lana is named in this 1990 pop single. It's a Madonna song. Material Girl? Vogue. Vogue. Vogue is right. Rita Hayworth gave good face. Betty Davis, we love you. Lana Turner got away with murder. murder. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> That's not it, but I wish. Maybe she did, maybe she didn't. Thank you, Mark. Thank you. All right, friends, let us know what you think about the Lana Turner murder case, or the Johnny Stompanato murder case. Did Lana do it? Did she not do it? What did her hairdresser know, and when did he know it? Coming up, Cheryl Crane. Join us on Patreon when Cheryl Crane avoids our emails. <laughs> <laughs> See you all soon. Let us know what you thought. Bye. Thanks for listening to This Was a Thing, and a big thanks to the folks that keep this show running. Our editor, Daniel Cut-Cut Schwartzberg, our composer, Billy Better Than DC Reese, our social media director, Gabe Hashtag Crawford, our graphic designer, Natalie's Nothing's Too Graphic DeSavia, and finally, our games coordinator, Mark the Shark Schroeder. If you liked what we did today, make sure to head on over to iTunes to rate and review us. The more stars you leave us, the more love we feel. Hey, speaking of love, show us some social media love. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at ThisWasAThingPod and Facebook we are ThisWasAThingPodcast. Reach out, we'd love to hear from you. And if you really liked what we did today, head on over to Patreon.com and become one of our sponsors and you'll get access to special episodes, interviews, and merch. That's Patreon. Search This Was A Thing and support us so we can keep doing this show. 